Welcome to this edition of Food, Faith, and Feelings on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio inside the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. The mission of Food, Faith, and Feelings is to walk with you on your journey to wholeness. Brought to you as an educational program under the nonprofit Mana Scholarship Fund, our program is designed to help you better understand issues related to your physical and mental diet. What you consume that impacts your head, your heart, and your soul. So we are thankful to our business partnership with Paradigm Security and Mr. Rick Strawn for providing this opportunity to come to you today. We hope to enrich your lives as he has enriched ours. So today I have the illustrious (laughs) Barbara Luttrell, nurse practitioner, extraordinaire. How long have we known each other? Long time, Jeannie. uh, You know, about 13, 12, 13 years. I was thinking it was longer, but it could be because 2006, man. right? Or 2007? 2006, let's say. So that's 15 years wow. <clears throat> when we started MANA initially. Mm-hmm. And so you have been a part of uh, the organization and you left me for a little bit and then you came back. That's right. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about that journey for you. I didn't go back to school to become a nurse practitioner till 2002. And after I graduated, I went to work at DeKalb Medical. And while I was there, I met Christian friends. And one of the things we got to talking about is we believe that we are body, soul, and spirit. And so many places heal the body or mentally the soul but very few address the spirit. And we came up with the conclusion that if the spirit's sick, it affects the other ones. Absolutely. So this person told me about you and what you were really? doing. Yes. I, I don't think I even knew that. And they recommended that <clears throat> I contact you. So I contacted Mana, and they set up an interview. And when I walked in the room, you know, my friend Dave was there, and uh, I didn't know you knew him, but uh, Dave Kuglin I met when I was That's like 18, hysterical. so I, I saw that as a sign. Yes, yes, Dave. Dave was one of my, when I first graduated with my doctorate, um, I worked with Dave here in Gwinnett County mm-hmm. starting in 2000, so... His father was my husband's boss in 1973 when we got married. Shut up. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. Later, not on air, I will talk to you about some funny um, interactions I've had with Dave's uh, dad. He was great. Mm -hmm. He was a great man. Now, so you came back to MANA. Let's see, you left... You, you came on in 2006 or well, seven. my protocol physician uh, left MANA, and so I took a position with the Veterans Administration. That's right. And then decided to kind of get a little nest egg of a retirement, you know, work for the government, get a great retirement was my philosophy. And then my son uh, started um, having some issues I wanted to talk to you about, and I called you back from the VA to see what you had to say, and you asked me if I could do history and physicals on patients in your program. So I came back then, and I think that was around 2016. It was, and we mm-hmm. had a uh, psychiatrist that yeah. you were able to protocol in well. That's right. That's right. So she's been, and then you didn't, but you didn't come back until 2018, right, for sure? I retired from the VA in 2018 and became more available. Right, that's right. Yeah, I have this reputation with practitioners that I find that are really amazing people. 
Um, and it's not me. I mean, I think it's a God thing, but it's like, if I want them, then I just continue to pursue them because I feel like God tells me, get them, go get them. And so when I do, like, it's like, I don't know, it's like I, I kind of suck you in. It's like being in the mafia. <laughs> Once you get in, you cannot get out. <laughs> Okay, I'm speechless. <laughs> That's hysterical. Okay, let's talk about something else. So today I wanted to talk about psychiatric medications because there's a lot of feelings around that, right? If you're on medication, people think they're crazy. If they're, it, it, there's just a lot of like shame around it. There's a lot of stipulation. There's, if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to take that. I mean, there's just a lot of different I think beliefs and fault, false ideas around how medications really impact a human. And so I know we were, we're gonna get to that, but I want you to go ahead and just talk a little bit about what is a nurse practitioner mm -hmm. and a psychiatric nurse practitioner? Well, a nurse practitioner is um, a nurse that has an advanced degree. So in order to enter into practice as an RN, you can do it with as little as two years. With parameters, you can do certain practice things at that level. So you can get into medicine pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you want to advance, you can get a bachelor's from there, and then you can get a master's from there. So it can take as many as eight years to become a nurse practitioner, but it can take as little as two years to get into psychiatric nursing and learn all about the business. So while you're getting your education, your facts, your uh, research, your knowledge about prescriptions and mental illness, at the same time you're seeing it. And so, you know, applied ap applied learning seems to stick. So that kind of makes uh, nurses unique in the area of psychiatric nursing. But also nursing itself has more of a holistic approach. You know, we were talking about body, soul, and spirit. Right. Uh, so it's not just diagnosis and treatment. It's more about partnering with the patient or collaborating with the patient. And of course, in the state of Georgia, nurse practitioners are required to have a protocol agreement with a physician, which I totally appreciate because in medicine itself, you get into life and death situations and you want backup and you want educated, knowledgeable, maybe people with a different point of view than you to give you what you're missing. So we have that too. Yeah, that's, well, that's one of the things that, um, one of the reasons why I created MANA as a group organization, because I feel like, especially in working with people with eating disorders, we really can struggle with, are we doing the right thing? And so having a group of people that you know and you can collaborate with and you can learn from is I think a really, really powerful thing and there's strength in numbers. And I think that one of the, the funny things about our, our team is that the, the reputation that we have within the clients that are in our program is that if you tell one, you tell them all. <laughs> That's true. And then they're really freaked out that I like, I don't, I, you know, I don't do a lot of the groups anymore, but like, I know what's going on. And so they think that I live in this, in the rafters right. in the building, which is hysterical. <laughs> you, you do have a reputation. Oh, <laughs> okay. And the next question is, what kind of, what is that? Oh, that's Mike Plain. Um, so uh, what kind of patients do you like to treat? 
of course, manna has a large eating disorder component, and I enjoy that age population. You know, the young people coming into understanding their identity, uh, what life's about, things like that. You give them the skills that we're giving them, and they are, you know, getting college on how to live life, really. Right. So I enjoy that patient. I also like patients that are going through transition, especially women, patients with medical problems, uh, depression and anxiety, which are very common in our society with the stress we all live under. Mm. And people, my favorite patient is the one that wants to get better because a lot of people think they want to get better until they find out what it takes. And then they're, you know, they kind of back off and you'll see treatment resistance. Even in the most willing people, there's an element of treatment resistance when it comes to mental health and changing your thinking. And definitely with people with eating disorders. Definitely. They're tough nuggets. (laughs) That's what I like to say. But the other thing I like to say about them is that because of their resilience and their tenacity, that they can literally do anything that they want to do. That's right. You know, sometimes in life it's your weaknesses that actually um, are your strengths because you know the pain, you know you have the experience with the problem, it's real to you, there's mm-hmm. there's empathy there that isn't anywhere else. So yeah, what you learn having an eating disorder is very important from recovering from an eating disorder. Absolutely, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what is, what is a psychiatric evaluation like? What, what do you do? <laughs> well, it depends because I have two psychiatric evaluations. The one I do for CARF, and if you guys don't know what that is, it's an organization that kind of looks over how we do things and makes sure it's right, you know? Mm-hmm. But then I have a more relaxed, more uh, way I enter in, but it's just building a base, psychiatric eval of where the patient's at and what the patient wants and can you help them? Because there's different levels of care. And so when you do the psychiatric evaluation, you're trying to determine uh, you know, what is going on with the patient and what level of care that they need. But like the CARF kind of evaluation is like 109 very personal questions, you know, and uh, some of them are uncomfortable for the patient to answer. And if our patient happens to be underage and their parents in the room, it's very hard to answer. That's part of the beginning of getting into treatment, but it's not all of it because it can take weeks to even get the information that you need that is usually included, you know, in the initial evaluation called the psychiatric eval. A lot of things we're looking at at that point is, would medication help this person? Whereas if you do a clinical assessment or a psych eval, sometimes you're not targeting in on the chemical uh, changes in the brain and whether medication would make a difference. So how do you make that determination? So like somebody comes in, um, let's say it's a 16-year-old and they're doing all kinds of acting out Maybe they're, you know, sneaking out or they're talking back to their parents. They're just, you know, the defiant kid. So how would you make a determination if that kid need, needed medication? Well, what I look at is severity of illness and how acute it is and uh, how the patient's behavior has been, like if they have poor impulse control. Because if they have a high level of severity in their presentation, I go, as much as I can, as fast as I can, you know. So it, therapy right away, medication right away, and things like that. Then if I run into obstacles with medication or treatment resistance, then I make sure they're safe. 
Let's say the child does want medication and the parent doesn't. What do you do? I pray first. That's my (laughs) go-to thing on situations like that because I don't know everything. And so when I'm talking to a person who has treatment resistance or opposition to medication, I want to hear what they have to say and why they think that way. And I always go into it with the idea they may be right. You know, and I always go into the idea that a parent is the person living with the child, responsible for the child, and I just met the child, you know. So I don't have an agenda to talk them into it. But I believe overcoming stigma, overcoming fears, all those things take education and evidence and proof that they work. And so, you know, I'm a researcher and a big uh, proponent of uh, evidence-based practice. And we have answers like that available to us, but that's slower. That takes longer to educate somebody that's diabolically opposed to the treatment plan that you're recommending. The only time I intervene or use a heavy hand, like what we call a commitment or a 1013, if I think there's imminent danger there that the person will take their own life or if they'll harm somebody else. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about, you You mentioned um, stigma. I know that we have recently dealt with that with one of our clients and her parents. And so let's, um, so some of the stigma is that, like I said already, if I have to take medi- medication, it means I'm crazy. And so how, how do you address that statement or that belief? <laughs> I actually use a little bit of a sense of humor as I get them to define crazy because uh, when I look back on the stigma, I've been a Christian a long time myself, and I've sat under teaching that says God's going to heal you. You don't have to take meds, you know, or I've sat under people that say they're just messing with your mind. You know, they tell you not to take drugs, but they give you drugs, you know, so there's a lot of reasons why people you know, have these belief systems. And I think anytime there's a false belief, I do think it takes inspiration from God to undo that and develop beliefs that are healthy and that work for you. So, you know, in AA recovery, whenever somebody has a a strict opposition from medication or therapy, and they sit in your office because they're totally unraveled, you say, well, how's that idea working for you now? You know, because you try to get them to uh, loosen up on stubbornness or the fixed belief that may or may not be true. Well, I think the other uh, the other component to all of this is that you said we are a body, a soul and a spirit, Mm -hmm. right? The body like medication impacts the body. And so if someone's brain chemistry is not producing enough of the what I'll call the happy hormones or the happy chemicals, the brain chemicals. Uh, Neuro. Yeah. The neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's where the medications can help. So if you have someone that is depressed, what, what are some things that help you decide like, yes, they need medication. And what are some things, what are some medications that you might prescribe? I'm a scientist, and so I like to start with actually a method where I can see improvement myself. So I use the Beck Depression Inventory at MANA, but there are other depression inventories that work really well, too. Only to say that depression is not just sadness. There's like 20 different 
symptoms that can indicate that you're depressed, all the way from insomnia to lack of appetite to fatigue to brain fog to lack of motivation. You know, like some people get sad when they're depressed. Some people get angry when they're depressed. So when you do the back inventory, you get a list of their opinion of their most predominant symptoms. Mm. And there's a score there that Dr. Beck used when he was creating this tool, has a lot of evidence to back it up of its effectiveness. And so depending on how depressed they are, whether it's an activating depression or maybe a sedating depression, like some people can't even get out of bed when they're depressed and they don't know why, they're just still tired or whatever the case may be. On the other hand, some people get activated and agitated and they can't sit still and they can't concentrate, those kinds of things. So there are different classes of drugs that chemically, depending on what chemical in your brain is out of balance, will will block those transmitters or those receptor sites, which allow you to build up neurochemistry that is a benefit to you. You know, so uh, there's a class of drugs called SS, let's see, SSRIs, serotonin uptake inhibitors. And serotonin is one of the biggest uh, uh, enzyme that, you know, regulates mood and those kinds of things, appetite really too, just a variety of things. But if you don't have enough serotonin in your brain, I doubt you could have a happy thought if you wanted to. Mm. You know, so you meet the automatic negative person and those kinds of things. I'm guessing they don't have enough serotonin. But because it has not become pathological for them or dysfunctional for them, it just becomes a personality trait. And they're kind of content with that. I'm going to stop you for a second. You said pathological or dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? What's that? It goes back to the question, how's that working for you? Because um, we all have goals and ideas and dreams that we want to accomplish. And there, it's like a hand that you're dealt. You're trying to accomplish this, um, I want to become an astrophysics thing. And every time you go, you find out that you can't even get along with the person interviewing to let you into the program, you know? <laughs> so how's that working for you? It's not. And that's where it becomes pathological or dysfunctional. So you're looking at the behaviors. And so I know from, you know, school and practice that if a behavior is repetitive and impacts you in two or more areas of your life in a negative way, that is identifiable as a disorder, a potential disorder, mm -hmm. correct? And pathological, that's the actual definition of the term. Okay, so pathological means it's obviously bad for you. Mm -hmm. And anything else about that? Well, fixable is the first thing that comes to my mind because we develop behavioral patterns that do not work for us and we don't have to live like that, you know. Some people can simply describe it as a bad habit. You know, there are ways to change. There are a lot of ways to change. And one of my personal discoveries in my many years on the planet is you need help. I mean, I need help. You can't do it alone kind of thing. Yeah. Healing occurs in relationships. Not only your relationship with God, but your relationship with others. And if you actually hire a professional who's trained in the illness structure, then you're in a relationship with somebody you can partner, or can guide you, that has tools in their toolbox that they can share with you and you can put in your toolbox. 
You know, as you're saying different things, I'm thinking um, we have, you know, we have different clients that have all different kinds of issues because we don't just treat eating disorders. We treat trauma-based disorders and we treat your anxiety and your depression and different things like that. When someone is suspicious or suspect or like, how do you gain that trust with them? I think honesty is the beginning of recovery. And I think honesty also plays a big part in trust and consistency and things like that. You meet people where they are and you have to validate their experience or their feelings that they're going through, that these things are real, you know, and um, there's the seen world and the unseen world, you know, and so there's evidence that your feelings make a difference, not only to you, but to the people that are in relationship with you. And so once you validate that, and that begins to build trust because they know you're listening to them. Great. And that's the beginning. And then the rest goes how you stick to your word. and Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right. Honesty and then consistency and following up. And when your words and your actions are the same, then that is the basis of developing trust. I think role modeling, too. I love to see people who have recovered actually taking care of people who are trying to recover they know the way yes absolutely and that is exactly why when someone comes to me and they want to interview for um, an internship or for uh, you know to be a part of our, our team if they have successfully recovered from their eating disorder, I'm all over it because mm-hmm. I there are some intangibles in that process that is you just can't teach in school. And so if you've been there and done that, um, then that is exactly what I love about especially, you know, part of most of our well, not most, but at least half of our team is, has gone through an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So are there any other myths or stigmas that you can think of? Like we talked about the religion. Um, how do you deal with that? I read a book uh, early in my career called Toxic Faith. Mm. And the interesting thing about this book is a lot of times we have faith in things that probably we shouldn't, that don't work for us, or that really don't lead to any kind of positive outcome. And so... When you recognize faith development and how it happens, I think it's important to just, again, pray about it. Because if you're talking about faith, people want to see your faith. Mm. I'll pray together with my patients if, if this is something that they want. Or in the assessment, we discover we have the same faith background. And, you know, you offer it up and if they want it. But I can tell you, I've, I've never offered it up and somebody didn't want it, you know. Right. They'll even tell me I don't believe, but if you believe, I'm I'm willing to participate, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So what do you do when um, a patient or the medication itself makes things worse or they don't work? What do you do? That is such an excellent question because the magic you pill. You gave it to me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's only because I run into it daily kind of thing. Sure. But sometimes medications don't work. And fortunately today, uh, we do have a lot of ways to find the right medication. You know, everybody's body chemistry is different, but now we can do genetic testing and we can check on the metabolites in their body and do they match the metabolites in the drug and are they assimilated, you know? So we don't have to try and fail as many times as we used to. So do you use that? I know that we have those tests at the office. Um, Do you use those with everyone? 
No, they're very expensive. So we look for people who have failed treatment once with the medication at least. But okay. by the time we get them, sometimes they've failed many trials and, you know, I'll even start there. But, um, and a lot of people do not want their gene on a public record somewhere, you know. Mm. So uh, it's really protected by HIPAA healthcare, but a lot of times it is out there in cyberspace once it's collected and the... Um, uh, information, you know, just like Ancestry.com. Sure, for research purposes. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, when people fail on medicine, I, I think the important thing is not to give up for them or for someone else because these outside environments like diet and exercise and other illness states can affect whether or not a medication works. You can even try the same medication later and have it work. Mm. I do think if you don't change your thinking the medicine isn't going to work because thoughts and feelings are chemical reactions in the brain. So if you're taking a chemical to improve your brain chemistry and you don't change your thinking, then that same chemistry that caused the depletion in the first place is still there. So um, so you're saying that a negative thought can cause your chemistry to change. That's right. That's what I'm telling you. That's great. <laughs> so one of the things that I do remember from, I think it was college, was that they did a study and they looked at when someone was depressed, talk therapy versus exercise versus medication. And they looked at each one of them individually and if it you know, helped the person change. And then they looked at them in combination. And what they found is that all three like together in combination and and when i talk about i'm going to pull out my eating disorder caveat so the world is con- is consumed with i think really crappy and faulty messages about exercise and this this belief that you have to counterbalance what you eat and that feeding your body isn't okay but Exercise, when it's done appropriately, meaning you're not overstressing your body, you're not exercising when you're exhausted, you are doing that 30 minutes to an hour, you know, three to five times a week, that's, that's with a healthy mindset. I mean, if the mindset when you're, if you're out there on a three mile rock or run is, I got to lose weight, I got to lose weight, that's actually not healthy for your brain because your brain can interpret it, it interprets negative even like negatively laced comments in your brain as it doesn't matter if it's coming from you or someone else it's like if you wouldn't say it to someone else don't say it to yourself because what you're doing is your those negative undertones and those negative statements are definitely impacting your brain chemistry it goes right along with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And if you are finding that you are trying to change the way you think, but it is difficult, then, and it's, it's impeding and impacting your life, like we said, in two or more areas. That can be home life, work life, school life, friendships, just any kind of interactions and, and relationships that you have. If those aren't satisfying, if you're not feeling positively f- with in in those relationships and it's because of your negative thinking then that's when you need to change them and that's when you need some intervention 
And that's why talking helps, because you can verbalize those thoughts and feelings and other people can see them and um, actually give you feedback if you're there for advice, you know, and that can change your thinking. Yeah, we become mirrors, don't we? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, do you want to do you want to listen to what you just said? Yeah, you do that well. Uh, I try. Do you want to tell us a story of a patient where medication made a difference? You know, uh, one of the things I like best in my job, especially working in a faith-based organization, is I see recovery every day. And little ones, big ones, the whole way around. But I'll never forget this one person I met. He was a gentleman in his 40s. He was career-directed. He was very driven in perfectionism. And he had a terrible problem with depression. And so we started him on the gold standard called Prozac. (laughs) It's one of the first ones that came out of the SSRIs. And uh, I would say it takes a while for that to work. So he was a little, we met while it was getting up and going, and he was saying, I don't know, I still feel pretty blank, 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 can't say it on the radio kind of thing. Sure. (laughs) Bad. It was bad. (laughs) But anyway, about six weeks kicked in, and I got a call from his wife. And she says, what did you do with my husband, she said, he got up this morning and made me coffee for the first time in 10 years, you know. Aww. So I said, I think it's a sign. I think maybe something has kicked in. And then we became friends with them, by the way, and knew them over time. And about maybe 10 years later, she said, I can tell he's not taking his meds. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she could tell, you know. So uh her and I and him and my husband sat down and we got to talk and and we just asked him if he was taking them and he said no that he he felt like he didn't need them he didn't need them and you know what when you do get to feeling better you do feel like you don't need them and you don't discover that until you stop taking them and you go back down you know if and that doesn't happen in every case but in his sure. case and so he agreed to go back on them and about two weeks later we all went out to a movie and stuff and I just heard him laughing Mm. You know, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm not sure he'd be laughing if he never went down this road at all. And in him, it was a chemical imbalance. I mean, his life already had a lot of fruit in it. I mean, it had already been successful, and he had a good relationship with his wife and all these things. But it was a struggle for him to maintain that because of what was going on in his head and his heart. And then we finally got him some relief. And then when that relief hit... um, it was almost like a reward for good behavior, you know? Yeah. So that's it's fantastic. my favorite story. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and uh, as you were talking, I was thinking again about the body being a, the biology, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're finding that you have fears or, you know, you think you're crazy because you're, you've been told that you need to take an antidepressant or your wife is saying you're you know I'm tired of you being grumpy go do something about it then that is what that person is trying to do is tell you hey I love you I want to have a better relationship with you and I need you to do something so that we can have fun in life Mm -hmm. I don't want you to be grumpy and so if the same situation was connected with let's say um, a lesion in your brain or a tumor in your brain and the tumor was pressing and you you didn't feel those happy feelings or your serotonin wasn't being released in your brain would you take the medication for 
another biological issue such as cancer or diabetes or something like that? And if your answer is yes, then you don't really understand the brain chemistry and how it needs to change and how medications, whether you use them for six months, a year, or your whole life, then you just really don't understand how the brain chemistry needs to work and needs needs a little extra something. It's kind of like if you're diabetic and you need the shot to be healthy and not lose your feet, are you going to do that? And so looking at your brain and your thoughts is a biological situation. It's not, I think, different. I mean, I think the problem is, is because we don't, we can't see our thoughts. We can't, we, we can't see the feelings. We can't see that. It's not like a physical thing that we can see. And because we have thoughts and those are invisible, not to us. I mean, we can hear them or see that, you know, like we can, we know them going on in our brain. And so the important thing is to make sure, and I, I always like that there's subjective and objective, right? Subjective is what I say to myself about myself and what I think, right? Objective is if somebody else said that to me, or if I said that to someone else, right? If it's in between myself and someone else. And so if, and this is one of the things we teach at, at MANA with our, our clients in our program, is like, if you wouldn't say that to someone else because you would hurt them or you would make them angry, or if, if they said something to you and it would hurt you or make you angry, then you need to stop saying it to yourself because you are literally hurting yourself. Anyway, if you're, again, in the struggle, you can't stop it, then um, you can come to MANA. MANA's information is MANA, M-A-N-N-A, treatment.com, or you can call us at 770-495-9775. We've got lots of information on our website. We've got links to set up appointments. Um, we've ev- even got a link for your physician to send us information if on your behalf. If they want to refer you for medication or a program or something that we offer, then it's right there as well. And so, Barb, do you want to talk a little bit about the program at MANA, our, our psychiatric practice, and what's changing? Well, I have a, um, a title I've given um, our department, I call it MANA Medical. I like it like M&M's, you know, like chocolate. (laughs) Of course, chocolate's a famous medication. So um, it's very addictive, (laughs) especially the dark chocolate. (laughs) But anyway, at MANA Medical, right now we have three nurse practitioners and one uh, psychiatrist. I am trying to retire once again, but I always... I think I'm going to let you go this time. Well, I have a heart for Mana, so... <laughs> and you. <laughs> but there's a time for everything. So we have a new... Uh, we call her the medical services director. Her name is Sandra Peterson, and she's going to be uh, kind of the lead nurse practitioner. And we also have another one uh, by the name of Farah Raham. And the thing I like about Farah is not only that she knows state-of-the-art research that's going on, but she has some ideas about treatment that are really exciting. And I'll just use the word ketamine uh, to uh, tell oh, you a little wow. bit. But she, there's a lot of research going on right now, and this is for treatment-resistant depression on how to make changes. And... Um, 
I'm just surprising Jeannie with this now, but it you could. Mana Medical could probably have something like this with Farah. So, um, ketamine. Yes. So, anyway. Wow. It, we, I was going to actually ask you alternative treatments uh-huh. for people. So, ketamine. Um, we have ECT. Yes. We have TMS, yes. transmagnetic stimulation. We don't have those, but those are options for treatment. Options for treatment, absolutely. And we can facilitate you getting those kind of options, you know. But um, the medical department's growing and changing, and there's new research every day. And uh, it's a very key component to work with therapy. I mean, a lot of people have therapy and a lot of people have medical, but MANA has medical and therapy. And the combination of it, it just shows in uh, the higher recovery rates. And anyway, we're excited to be the group that we are and the group we're growing into. I am super thankful for you coming on our show today. Um, I think it's this is something that is really um, impactful on people's lives. And I just want to say, you know, I, I've said it a couple of times that if, if you go on medication, a lot of times people think that they're crazy. Well, my understanding from the 25 years that I've been doing this is that crazy just simply means I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what's going on with me. I don't understand how medication works. I don't understand why I'm saying these things or doing these things. And so I'll use an old an old tagline. If you don't get help at MANA, get help somewhere. <laughs> and so... Um, Please take care of yourself. You are a valuable person, and we want you to get better. Barb, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. You are just a delight. You are just uh, one of my favorite people, mm-hmm. in addition to Mike back there. So thank you today for tuning in to Food, Faith, and Feelings. We want to walk with you on your journey to wholeness. So be sure to subscribe to our show. You can find us on about 12 different podcast apps, such as Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, or Spotify. All shows are also archived on businessradiox.com. Just go to Business Radio X, select the Gwinnett Studio, and click on Food, Faith, and Feelings. Until next time, I am Dr. Jeannie Burnett, and this has been Food, Faith, and Feelings on Business Radio X.